Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode four, Mur- Ohio versus Murder 2.0. And you are listening to part two of our story of the murder of Christy Mullins. If you haven't listened to part one, you need to stop and go back and listen to part one. Because this is part two. We're going to go present day. We're going to talk to John Oller about his book, All American Murder, his investigation, and how his work in the renewed investigation of the Columbus Police Department ultimately solves the cold case murder of Christy Mullins. We've got our North High Brew here. We're having another IPA. Again, see them at NorthHighBrewing.com. Check out our friends at In the Record Store. Our friends of music podcasts, interviews, bands, national bands, and also really focuses on the Ohio music scene. Uh, check out Grant and Vince at InTheRecordStore.com. But we're going to get started right away. We're going to try and solve the murder of Christy Mullins. It's episode four, Ohio versus Murder, part two. And if I wasn't so scared of the man that he was, I would have come forward sooner. She has never been forgotten. Gives me cold chills thinking about it. The Columbus Division of Police, which is to formally and publicly offer an apology to the family and close friends of Christy Mullins. When we last left off, Jack Carmen had been acquitted of murder in 1977. Acquitted of the murder of 14-year-old Christy Mullins behind the Graceland Shopping Center in Columbus in the woods when she was killed on August 23, 1975. The case goes cold. And I mean cold. Ice cold. People don't forget, but the police refused to do much of anything. And we talked to our, our, one of our guests, Mary Mancino, about you know, the case going cold. What happened? What did people do? Was there anything to be done? It went completely cold. Um, boy, and that's hard to um, admit because this was someone that was just a very special person. She was a true innocent. But our, our guest, John Oller, Decides to come back to Columbus, his, where his alma mater, he's living in New York City as an attorney. He's published a few books. And he comes into the story, and we asked Mary you know, about John's role in solving this murder and how his, his book and his project ends up reopening the case. Wow. Uh, first of all, like a dog with a bone. <laughs> I, I just really admire... I admire John. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be brushed under the rug and ignored like I felt many times. He comes back to Columbus to do his, to do his true crime novel, All American Murder, and he starts his own investigation. And he's meeting with people. And he's covering his bases. Um, he just got done writing his book, American Queen, uh, about the story of Ohio and Kate Chase. Civil War, Celebutant, uh, incredible, the incredible life she lived. Uh, it's an awesome book. And it's actually going to be the subject of a future podcast this season. 
about the life, the crazy life of Kate Chase. Um, but John comes back and we ask him about starting that investigation. Well, I think, so this is October 2013 and I was uh, just finishing up American Queen right. and looking for a new topic. And I don't know why it was, it, I had it in my, my I'd done a couple biographies and for some reason I thought I would try my hand at true crime. And I was looking for a true crime subject, and nothing seemed to really resonate with me until I and then I suddenly remembered this case from. Um, you were here when it happened. Yeah, yeah, so I started looking into it and became pretty fascinated with it, and um, I contacted a uh, a bunch of. I think I started with friends and neighbors, and then contacted the family, and they they contacted me back, and we talked. And I talked to Jim Yaborsik and Rick Kelly, the, the Lannan reporters. And I ended up interviewing over 100 people um, and uh, used Facebook a, an awful lot to both to find people and contact people and to report events. And, and it really ended up, um, I, I, I had people come forward. My book came out in March of 2014 and in uh, May uh, the police announced that they were officially reopening the case. As John begins writing his book and pouring himself into this case, he's trying to work with the Columbus Police Department. But they're telling him it's, a, it's still an open investigation. They can't give him files. or He's getting roadblocked. But he's also energizing the Clintonville community. People who grew up in this community still live in, in that area of North Columbus who remember Christy Mullins, who remember the murder. And they remember that there's just something not right about it. He energizes folks from the, the Clintonville Area Commission who send letters to the governor and, and to the police chief and the mayor to reopen, to reopen the investigation. You know, we asked John just about those early stages, you know, when this cold case finally starts to heat up a little bit. Uh, uh... In the first phase, no, not when I started. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they were anything but. They would, they would not give me any files. Um, they said, "Well, the case has never officially been closed." So it's like an active investigation. So it's like an active. It's an inactive, active, active yeah. investigation. And as long as it's still open, <laughs> then we can't give you any files because it's work product or whatever. It yeah, was, it's kind uh, of in that purgatory. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know. Uh, so anyway, but then after they reopened the investigation, uh, reluctantly, I think, I mean, or under really under public pressure, um, there have been a lot of letters, you know, sent to the governor and the mayor. And right, the Clintonville Area Commission. Clintonville I think. Area Commission. There was a lot of pressure. It was, on, it was on TV several times. Yeah, I remember seeing it on TV. Yeah. So anyway... Um, uh, to her credit, I think, uh, I think the, I don't know if she's still police chief, Kim Jacobs. She is. Uh, I think she made the decision to, um, or at least accepted the decision to reopen the case. And they assigned a real detective this time, someone who actually wanted to get to the truth, a detective named Steve Eppert. And he spent a number of months on, and, and, I, and I, I coordinated with him to the extent that I could. I mean, for per their protocol, they couldn't really... Uh, uh, tell me everything they were doing and but I, I fed them information and uh, fed him information 
and and he went about it in a pretty dogged way, and um, that went on for what was that a year and a half. A renewed push to solve a 1975 cold case murder. 14-year-old Christy Mullins killing shocked the Clintonville community. Now, police tell me the only way they would reopen the case is if there is new information pointing to a suspect. I did speak with Christy's sister also. She says she hopes someone will finally come forward with information and this case can truly be closed once and for all. With a new book out and recent media attention, police have decided to take another look at this case. You hear from the news, what new information is there? You know, we have to find this new information or the police aren't going to reopen the case. I mean, what if we found Lisa and got her to tell her story finally? But she hasn't, she hasn't spoken about it in years, and she never even changed her story. She even passed a polygraph about it once. Um, you know, what if we get a confession from somebody? You know, nothing had changed for years in the case. Mary and her friends still talked about it. And Mary comes up with the idea when she sees DNA evidence. You see it in the O.J. Simpson trial and other trials throughout the late 90s and into the early 2000s. But Mary thinks about DNA. and Maybe it can be a key in this case. The story, it was just bizarre. We just felt that it was so abruptly brushed under the rug. And when we would ask questions, the answer always was, it's still a pending case. Sure. John, and John ran into a lot of that, too. Yeah, that was... And you knew, don't ask a thing. You could feel it. And, and it, just the injustice, wow. Once DNA, you know, really started being used in cases, I thought for sure, and so did some of my friends I had talked to, oh, this is it. We're going to find the answers. Again, uh, there didn't even seem to be an interest and it was heartbreaking because yeah. I don't know how much you know about Christie's dad. Norman, yeah. He lost his mind, Alex. He was so grief-stricken. And he, and, and people would treat him like, you know, he was a pariah in society. And the truth is, is he just kept searching and searching and turning over every stone. And people just... It's so heartbreaking. DNA crosses the mind of John Oller, too. We ask him, why didn't DNA, why wasn't it conclusive in this case? You know, it looks like it was, it was analyzed by the Columbus police as they reopened the murder of Christy Mullins. We asked John about that, that DNA investigation. I mean, they tried. They still had some of the original physical evidence, you know, shirt and swimsuit and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, and what they were hoping is, is that the DNA, DNA technologies has improved to the point where even if there are some gaps, it can help bridge the gap mm -hmm. maybe. But, but anyway, the bottom line is the, the DNA scrapings that they were able to get from the old stuff was just too degraded, too corroded over yeah. time. It did not. Uh, it produced a you know unknown male um, donor, was kind of the rubric. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't good enough to be able to match to anything else.
John starts going through the old investigation, 1975, leading up to the trial. And he can't help but focus on Henry Newell and his brother, um, who may have been involved. But Henry has about 25 different suspects, he told me. I asked him if he had like one of those cork boards you see in a movie with all the little strings and arrows. Uh, he said he didn't, which I thought was a real missed opportunity. I've never had a, a cork board with a bunch of people's faces on it and arrows and stuff. I, I'd like to do that sometime. But one thing he finds out about Henry Newell and the police investigation of him, what little there was in the 1970s, he finds out that Henry Newell was a low-level informant for the Columbus police. Yeah, yes, that's been documented. At least he had at least two um, police connections. Um, whether it had anything to do with their going easy on him or not investigating him for the murder, I can't say that. Right. Uh, but he certainly boasted. He made no uh, bones about the fact he would boast to people in the, in the neighborhood that nobody can touch me because I'm protected by the police. Now, he was a boastful person. I mean, yep. He claimed to have connections in the FBI and the CIA and it's stuff like that. So, you know, you couldn't believe a word out of the guy's mouth. John meets with the old investigators, the old detectives. Uh, and he, the case gets reopened and, you know, in some capacity. But we asked John about, you know, what did those detectives think now, almost 40 years later, about the case? These same guys who pinched Jack Carmen forced a confession out of him, and rode that, fo- you know, that bogus confession all the way to trial, to an acquittal. We asked John about, about what those detectives thought now and what he thought was going on with the Columbus Police Department after his review of their files when they finally turned them over to him in 2014. Um, there were two main on-the-scene detectives back then, and one who uh, extracted the confession. The one who extracted the confession uh, died during my investigation, but was quoted as saying that he came to the conclusion that despite the confession, Carmen didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was upset that he had been part of a process that railroaded this, this kid. Uh, the other two kind of on-the-scene investigators, um, one of them I talked to and, and Detective Eppert talked to, uh, still insisted that Carmen was guilty. And the other one sort of flip-flopped and said, oh, he uh, always knew that Carmen wasn't guilty. And he had known that back then and told his superiors that he had doubts and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of evidence in the files, which I finally did get after the case was reopened, mm-hmm. uh, evidence in the files to the effect that they, anyone who questioned Carmen's guilt was told to, quote, stand down, that um, we got our guy and let's not upset the apple cart, let's not create any evidence that a, a defense attorney could use to try to get him off. And so the, uh, the higher-ups, I, I think they just wanted the case off the front page, they wanted a, they wanted it solved, um, you know, and so there was a lot of pressure to, to um, solve the case. And then once you had a confession, to say that's, that's it, we've got our guy. 
John uses Facebook and email and looks people up. Although he's he's pushing his investigation seems to be going in one direction. He doesn't have any confirmation. And Henry Newell's dead. He died in 2013, right as John was just starting this book. He spent a lot of time in and out of jail. Um, but Henry Newell's gone. You can't ask him. And his family members aren't talking to him at first. But then there's a breakthrough. The police, you know, they claim they need new information. Well, John gets them that new information. He gets a phone call from the niece of Henry Newell. And she wants to talk about her uncle, J.R. She's ignored John Oller's, you know, reaching out over the last few months. But he gets a phone call. And then he gets another phone call. A phone call from actually Henry Newell's daughter. His daughter who was actually born right after Christie's murder. Uh, his daughter, estranged daughter, also calls John. I got an email message, that's right. She said, you know, I'm the person you contacted on Facebook a month, a few months ago and never got back to you. Now I have some information about the Christy Mullins murder that I think I'd like to tell you. Can I call you at some point? I said, sure, and I gave her, her, gave her my number. She calls me, and she proceeds to relate the story about how when she was younger, I, I don't know, teen, like 16, her uncle Henry had confessed to her wow. that he was in fact the uh, killer of Christy Mullins and she had details in it, some of which I think are a little off, but the gist of which is that he saw her, found her waiting, sitting there on the guardrail, kind of chatted her up and and got her to follow him back into the woods, at which point in, and I'm paraphrasing, that he started to get fresh with her. She resisted, and one thing led to the next, and and he, um, you know, beat her to death. That was that was his confession, according to the niece, and but, that that's that's what really kind of forced the hand of CPD to reopen because their position had been, were you know, the case is inactive, active, whatever, but we're not reopening it unless there's some new evidence right. well this was new evidence you now got uh, a family member saying he had confessed and pretty soon i got another call from his daughter the the daughter of pam newell um who pam had been pregnant with at the time of the murder i get a call she says this is judonna newell no one could find her she was in the streets i get a call from this is Judana Newell. Uh, you know he did it, don't you? Wow, we asked John, you know, what does he do after he gets this call? been working on this case for so long he knows how important it is to so many people that have put their faith in him to help them solve it and he gets a call like this from the daughter and from the niece saying that Henry Newell confessed to the murder of Christy Mullins 
we asked John, what does he do? This huge piece of information has landed right in his lap. That was because that was a real break in the case. I mean, I didn't. In fact, I. I Who'd you call after you got that call? I called Yavorsik. Did you? Because he's a lawyer right, in yeah. Toledo, and uh-huh. he's a uh, he was a prosecutor. Right. Yeah. Um, right. and I said, "What do I do with this? Am I obligated to take this to the police? What do I do with it?" And and his advice, which was very good, was call her back and get her on tape. And which is what I did, because um, the first time she talked, I didn't have a. T- I just it would call. And, right, and, and you weren't set up. Yeah, police, right, and and then call. so I called her back and I said, "Do you mind kind of going through the whole thing again on tape?" And she said, "No, fine," and so she did. So now I had it on tape. Um, um, then I talked to the niece's mother, and this was probably the most damning. Te- this was maybe the clinching testimony. Uh, the nieces. This is the mother of the first person who called you. His yes, niece. the mother of the niece who was the wife of Newell's brother Tommy, um, who many people suspect was had some involvement in the murder, uh, or at least in, in in assisting. Anyway, so this this woman Nellie says. Uh, well, let me back up. The, the, the natural question to the niece was, how come you never said anything for 40 years? And one of her answers was, well, my mother told me don't say, you know, don't get involved. Don't say anything. Also, Junior was a violent, dangerous person, and he could take it out on you anyway. So Nellie, her mother, had said, don't get involved. Don't say anything. And was actually opposed to her coming forward. But anyway, Nellie agreed to talk to me. So I talked to Nellie over the phone. And she says, yes, well, what happened that day is that she and Tommy, the brother, were still in bed uh, from the night before. And Henry Jr. comes running into their bedroom and says, you know, I just found a dead girl in the woods. And he had blood over his shirt he ran downstairs, put his shirt in the washing machine, came back up, changed shirts, got his wife, got his kids, and said he was taking them to Wolco for a nature walk. And don't contradict me on that. Words to that effect. Yeah. Both of the family members, he turns this, this information, the recordings, and his info, he turns them over to Columbus police. And the police right away, Detective Eppert, who... John actually talks very highly of the new investigator in the case. Uh, He puts them both on a polygraph, and they both pass. They pass the polygraph, and now suddenly the police have new information. The the Columbus police did, Detective Eppert, they gave um, the niece a polygraph and Nellie, her mother, a polygraph, and they both passed. So why did they feel comfortable talking you know, about if they were so afraid of Henry Newell? Well, um, uh, Henry Newell passed away in August or September of 2013. So he, he was actually deceased by the time I started out on this. Yeah, and by the time your book came out, certainly. Yes. Yeah. I did just speak with Newell's niece. She shared with me a dark secret that she kept inside for a very long time. He said, do you remember a long time ago, like when you were growing up and you 
heard the story about Christy Mullins. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, well, what I'm about to tell you is probably going to shock you. Pam Newell Brown was 16. And he said, I killed her. I just started crying. I'm like, what? She was 14. Why? So many questions. The confession came in a car, an uncle speaking to his niece. Pam came forward more than 20 years later. Newell, or Uncle JR as she called him, was dead. She was a woman filled with guilt, but also for so long fear, scared about what this man would do to her. I just felt that if I said anything, I would be next. The police continue the investigation, but the cat is out of the bag. News stories. Christie's friends getting together, Mary and other people talking about Newell. We knew it. It was Newell. And the Columbus Police Department calls a press conference. They call it over at their training facility, the CPD training facility, on the near west side on Hague Avenue. Christie's family is there. And we're going to actually play you what the Columbus police said on November 6, 2015, at this press conference regarding the murder of Christy Mullins 40 years earlier. The Columbus Division of Police wishes to formally and publicly offer an apology to the family and close friends of Christy Mullins. The suspect responsible for the death is Henry H. Newell Jr. A witness testified that Mr. Newell confessed to him that he had killed Christy Mullins. He placed the shirt over the victim's face, for one. Um, he also uh, he admitted to touching the, the murder weapon. We would file charges on Mr. Newell if he were alive today. several friends were there. It was, um, you know, it was kind of bittersweet, I guess. It was that they had solved the case, that they had said the person was the killer, who we all believed was the killer. They did apologize. Um, on the other hand, uh, and I think the family feels more strongly about this than others do, perhaps, some disappointment that for, for, for two reasons, um, um, sort of a glass half empty versus half full attitude, that that while they had identified the killer, they hadn't really ascertained why or how or the details or the particulars of why he did it um, or whether someone else was involved, particularly someone who might still be living and could be subject to you know, justice. Um, and then secondly, um, there was there was no real accountability for this original screw-up. Yes, they said that the original investigation was flawed, but there was no one, either because the people who conducted it were dead or were just following orders or whatever, mm -hmm. um, there was no one to really hold accountable for their grief uh, for 40 years. I asked Mary about her reaction when she heard she still lives in the Columbus area, 
when she heard about the press conference. The police had identified Henry Newell after all these years, 40 years. Mary kind of speaks for maybe even the Mullins family and definitely her friends when her reaction to the Columbus police announcement. Yeah, it was very bittersweet. But my initial response was um, before I didn't even think we'd get the answers right. from the Columbus police. I had given up. I'm telling you what, John had more faith <laughs> than any of us. He carried, he drug us, he drug us to the finish line. My attitude was, oh yeah, so what? How safe? He's dead now. You you were so busy trying to close it before, and now that he's dead, hmm, okay. Oh, he did it. Oh, gee, thanks. My trust was totally shot. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe it. I, I mean, I do, I know that it's Newell, and I just never understood how they didn't know it was Newell. Even though police named Henry Newell the killer two years after his death, they didn't go into that much detail about what actually happened. Was anyone else involved? Why was Christy in the woods? There's still so many questions. What about the Lisa aspect? Did Jack Carmen have anything to do with this? What about Henry Newell's brother, known to be a, a criminal element who hung around, even lived with Henry, was there on the day of the murder? We asked John Oller, you know, what does he think happened in this case? What really happened to Christy Mullins on August 23rd, 1975, in the woods behind the Graceland Shopping Center? There's so many different theories, and I've adopted some and discarded some and then readopted uh, <laughs> and then over the years. Yeah. I, I, in, in broad strokes, very broad strokes, I would say my suspicion is that, uh, more than suspicion, is that drugs were involved in some way, uh, probably as some sort of inducement, um, that there may have been another male, you know, teenage roughly, uh, involved either as uh, either physically involved in going back there in the woods with Christy or or she was told that you know back there in the woods so and so her good friend would be there um, sort of as bait used by Newell. Newell had a lot of connections to these teenage males in the area who he supplied with drugs and beer and the like. Um, I think that the brother is probably the person who made the, the phone call, if there was a phone call that day, which I'm not 100% sure about, the disc jockey phone call. Mm -hmm. um, if there was a phone call made that day, I think it's most likely that it was Newell's brother. Tommy. Tommy. Um, there are... There's anecdotal evidence that Christy... Um, was afraid of something in the days leading up to the murder, had some concerns. Maybe she, you know, knew something, had seen something. You know, about Henry or Tommy yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it was later attributed to Henry Newell through his father, who was another badnik, that he said to a neighbor person that, you know, um, he had killed a girl once because she, quote, had something on him. 
uh, he did, there was this testimony at trial by the mother, grandmother of Bobby Saltz that after the murder, when they were going to the funeral home, Henry said in the car, you know, when they were talking about the murder, that'll teach her to keep her damned mouth shut. There was phone cord around her wrist, so that injects an element of premeditation to it, you know, that he brought phone, or the killer brought phone cord to the murder site. Yeah, that's weird. Either in anticipation of, of a, you know, having to subdue the victim or, or whatever. So, you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the, is the best one. The simple, simplest theory is just as the niece said, in, in, according to the confession of Mary, of, of, um, of uh, Henry. Henry, and just as Lisa testified that Christie was on the guardrail, that Lisa was inside Wolco, that Newell did come along, that she did follow Newell into the woods for whatever reason, either because he said he had something that would interest her back there or some person that would interest her, um, that things got out of hand back there. And and um, uh, I, I will say, uh, Lisa also passed a polygraph test on her testimony. Yeah. So, um, you know, we don't really know. Um, there's so many different theories. And that's what makes it sort of... I think that's what gives the case sort of a continuing fascination mm-hmm. is that um, is that we don't know and, and may never know uh, what actually happened um, and the possibility that there might be people out there who, who do know something more, um, at least, than what they've said in the past. When it comes to this whole Lisa story, again, Lisa Sprague is the name John uses in his book, All American Murder, not her actual name. Um, you know, she isn't talking. We might never know what Lisa's involvement was, if, if any. You know, why she told the story she did, which seems just so preposterous. You know, we asked our, our guest Mary about the whole Lisa thing. Um, she knew Lisa in high school before and after the murders. We asked Mary about, you know, her involvement. When Lisa went back from waiting for Christy and not knowing what happened, why did she not stop at Christy's house, which she had to stop to go over to the apartments? It was right on the way to say, is Christy okay? She never asked one person, have you seen Christy? What happened to Christy? Don't you think that's very telling? It's odd. It's odd. The whole thing is odd. So I feel this way. There is one person that knows all the answers. You know, and maybe one day Lisa will talk. But it hasn't happened yet. You know, whatever happened to, to, to Lisa Sprague, as, as, we're, as we're calling her? We asked Mary, you know, just what exactly did happen to her? The thing that I want to let your listeners know is Lisa did not have an easy time. 
she was ostracized. People were so cruel to her. And I've often thought this, no matter what, maybe she was up to some shenanigans. She was still a 14-year-old yeah. young woman who who didn't, I guarantee she did not plan on whatever happened to happen. I've often wondered if she did see, and she's been so traumatized that she can't speak about it. I still had compassion for her. I could see, and she, like, shut down. She wouldn't talk to people. It was people, she'd walk in the high school and people were just, it was terrible. She, she has not had it easy. She's still alive today? She is still alive. Um, I did, I was able to find some information on her. Um, I don't think life has been really easy and I, I and we'll never know. We'll never know the story because she's, she is not speaking. Uh, and I still have empathy for the very young yeah. girl that she was and what this really did do to her life. The Columbus police aren't answering questions about this case anymore. The case is closed. They've named a murderer. They held a press conference. They apologized to the Mullins and her friends for their previous investigation. They named a killer, Henry Newell. But did Newell act alone? Why did he tie her up? And what was Lisa's role in this? Was anyone else involved? You know, we may never know that. And that's a shame. We've got to thank John Oller for, for his investigation, for bringing any of this finally out into the open. I mean, we're going to close by turning our attention to the victim. Too often forgotten in these big murder cases. The O.J. Simpson case, you know, Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown too often are forgotten. And we're going to talk about Christy, and we asked Mary, you know, just about Christy's impact, her impact on her and her friends, um, and, you know, and how her short life still affects them, how her death still affects them over 40 years later. So this is important to me, but again, with talking with John and talking with other people and my girlfriend Patty said, hey Mary, she has affected your life. She said, you know, your children catch the bus at the end of your driveway and you stand, they're in high school, and you stand right there. Mm-hmm. Okay? Until they get on. Until they get on the bus. Uh, I, I hate to say it, it did make me like a helicopter parent. I never let my kids walk to school and I didn't realize until my friends said that it was all because of what happened to Christy. Uh, Christy's memory does live on. One of our classmates actually named her child after Christy. And in talking with everyone through all the years, maybe we didn't talk about it. She has never been forgotten. Yeah. Gives me cold chills thinking about it. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon 
so many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation, I'm sure you can guess. It's the only book written about about the murder of Christy Mullins. It's All American Murder, and it's an ebook. You can get on Google, type in John Oller, All-American Murder, Christy Mullins, um, and you'll find All-American Murder. It's right there. You can read it right on your computer, on your phone. Um, don't even need to download it. It's an ebook. It's available. And John's written some, some additions, some addendums to the cases as all this information came out. Um, but it is really is a quick, exciting read if you're into true crime. Um, and I'm a big fan of all of John Oller's books, you know, American Queen especially. Um, but check it out, All-American Murder. It's by John Oller. Look it up. Read it. There's so much more information about the case that we just can't get into in two shows. You know, so tell your friends uh, who listen to you know, my favorite murder and to Serial and, and all of my true crime folks. Miss Ohio v. The World, a big true crime fan. Um, you know, tell them to check this episode out. Tell them to check out John's ebook. You know, especially for an Ohio true crime situation. This is one of the most famous murders in Columbus history. Also, listen to our friends at In the Record Store. Um, they are awesome dudes. Vincent Grant, In the Record Pick up their magazine, In the Record Store. They've got a blog. You can follow them. Um, they will show you good music in the state of Ohio. Uh, new bands that you can go see. Um, some of them are friends of mine. You know, someone like uh, John Elliott, who does our "I Like Reading" song. Um, you know, his band Doc Robinson. Uh, very, very cool band. Uh, starting to really get some national play. Um, they were on the show. John's been on the show. Nick D, another buddy of mine, Nick D. Andrew from Doc Robinson's been on the show. Um, so check out in the record store. Um, very cool podcast. Good friends of ours. Also, Doc Robinson, our boy John, who sings uh, I Like Reading. His band is playing a New Year's Eve show. Uh, John Elliott and his friends, Doc Robinson. Um, they'll be playing New Year's Eve at Woodland's Backyard. It's in Grandview on Grandview Avenue. So if you don't have any New Year's Eve plans, swing down there. They'll have, I think, just one ticket price. Uh, covers everything, champagne, toast, you know, drinks, all that good stuff. So check out Woodland's Backyard or look up Doc Robinson. New Year's Eve um, should be a really sweet show. Thanks again to our guest. Mary Mancino was just awesome. Um, you know, she's still, you can tell she still thinks about Christy and the effect that she's, you know, she's right. This case still has had on her 40 years later. Uh, and not just her, but the Clintonville community. And also, John Oller, we'll have him back, like I said, in a, another episode in the next month or two um, to talk about one of my favorite Ohioans from history, Kate Chase. Um, but he was awesome, and I mean, you got to give him props. You know, you go in to write a book about, about a murder, and you end up solving the murder. I think that's pretty cool. So thank you, John, so much. He, he was in town for Thanksgiving, um, and right before he flew back to New York City, he came in, we sat down, and gosh, we probably met for over three hours talking about this, and and other stuff. So really cool dude. We'd love to have him back on the show. As far as our next episode, it'll be episode five. We're already a third of the way through season two, folks. Um, 
Episode five is going to be called Ohio versus Impeachment. We're going to have Bruce Carlson back from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of my favorite history uh, podcasts. And Bruce is going to talk about impeachment, presidential impeachment, and Ohio's role in the near impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1868. We'll talk about Senator Benjamin Wade, a radical Republican, pro-women's uh, suffrage, you know, anti-slavery, a pretty amazing guy himself, um, and how he was one vote away from becoming president. They actually took a vote in the Senate, uh, or a Congress, I'm sorry, in the House this week. Um, some Democrats brought up some uh, impeachment charges for President Trump. So it's on people's mind, and whether you believe that's, you know, a, an attention-seeking bill, uh, you know, to go for Trump's impeachment at this, at this point or not. But people are talking about impeachment. We'll talk about how you do impeach a president. And we'll talk to Bruce Carlson, who is, like I said, one of my favorite historians. Check out his show, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Um, every episode is just solid gold. That'll do it for episode four, Ohio versus Murder 2.0. We're going to do a true crime episode every single year. So every season we will do a new one. If you've got a great murder that you think I should look into here in the Buckeye State, uh, shoot me an email. Message us on, on Facebook or just post it on the page. Ohio v. The World um, on Facebook. we got a lot of activity on there. Or email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Again, check out the Instagram. The T-shirts are for sale. Email us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you want one of those. For the holidays, 20 bucks. Really soft. Thanks to our friends at Mysterioso Rock Art for getting those t-shirts to us. Um, again, super much appreciate Our guests were incredible. Um, and we got to tell you a story about a murder that a lot of people from my generation just don't know about. And we'll be back every other week, every other Monday, to give you guys new episodes of Ohio v. The World. Take it easy. Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.